Do you want to go down to a 40-hour week without losing revenue? If you're ready to let go of all the extra hours, the stress, the overwhelm, and the clients who hijack your time, consider my signature program, Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind. In it, we'll get your accounting practice under control. We'll fix your pricing problems. I'll show you ways to price so you stop giving away the farm so you bring in more revenue for the work you're already doing. I'll help you disengage the clients who are good people but are holding your business back and slowing you down. I'll help you package up your services and design them so they're easy for your clients to understand and choose from while helping you simplify and standardize what you sell. And we'll focus on making your messaging more interesting and compelling so you attract more of the kinds of clients you want to work with and break out of the hodgepodge of referrals trap. We get your prices up, we get your workload down. We standardize, we simplify, we streamline. And we do this at a pace that feels doable, where you feel confident in every choice you make. Prices up, workload down. Registration is open now. We start Tuesday, May 7th. Come with us. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to find out more. We made this accidental discovery that, hey, some of these organisms can metabolize chitin and they have the genes in their genomes. Welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast, where you'll hear from women entrepreneurs who are doing good in the world, from spark to screw up to success. Thinking big is in their core. It's in yours and it's in mine. I've traveled to 50 countries and seven continents, done an Ironman, and co-founded a company that has generated millions of dollars for sustainability. My name is Geraldine Carter, and I'm delighted to share with you conversations and coaching with amazing women. Time to get inspired and grow your impact. If you forgot to pick up your copy of Algal Research, you might have missed that microbiologist Corinne Blank made an important discovery in 2016, namely that the genome sequence of certain cyanobacterial species contained predicted chitin metabolizing genes. That's right. I'm taking you on a wild scientific ride in this episode. If you took molecular biology in high school, boy, is it going to come in handy today. This discovery allows Corinne to grow algae using products from two different waste streams. The first is a polymer called chitin, which is a material used by crustaceans and mushrooms in their shells and cell wall structure. The second is wastewater with dissolved phosphorus. The algae turn all this into two viable market products astaxanthin and biofuel, all while cleaning the phosphorus from the water. If you get lost in the science, don't worry. I throw you a rescue line with a simple explanation of the whole system partway through this conversation. I'm delighted to have with me today, Corinne Blank of Carbon Neutra. Hey, Corinne, welcome to the She Thinks Big podcast. Thanks for having me, Geraldine. So we're going to start with talking about Carbon Neutra and these tiny little hematococcus flagellates. Did I say that right? You did. (laughs) So for my listeners, like I said in the intro, Corinne has figured out or discovered this way of getting hematococcus flagellate to uptake chitin and make it clean water. And we're going to get into the details of that. So I have a bunch of questions for you, Corinne. Are you ready? I am ready. (laughs) So how on earth did you figure this out? How did you find this? Oh, wow. This was a total accidental discovery that we made. So I have been a research scientist for many years and have been working on 
mostly cyanobacteria and cyanobacterial genomes and the genes that are in their genome sequences. And so I was doing some research on the side, looking at genes involved in nitrogen metabolism, and we found some genes that were predicted to digest chitin. And chitin is an insoluble form of nitrogen. It's an organic polymer. And we kind of scratched our heads and went, chitin? What the heck? That was totally unexpected. Nobody's ever thought of growing photosynthetic microorganisms on chitin as a source of nitrogen. And so we just decided, hey, let's test this. We took a trip over spring break. We took a bunch of students to Soap Lake, Washington. We took some water samples and went back home. My folks sent me some crab shells that they picked up off the beach that have chitin in them. And I extracted it and fed it to algae cultures. And we put it in front of a light. And after a couple of weeks, they all turned green. So that's how it all started. Okay, so I have like a thousand questions in there. <laughs> so let's start with chitin. So is chitin the thing that crab shells and shellfish are made of, or is chitin a part of what they're made of? So chitin is an organic polymer, and it is in the shells of crab, lobster, and shrimps. It kind of makes their shells chewy, so it's a polysaccharide. And it's also found in the cell walls of mushrooms, so it helps make mushrooms chewy. It has that chewy consistency to them. So there are other things in the shells as well. So there's some calcium carbonate and there's protein. It's a very interesting laminated structure and chitin is just about 20, 25 to 30% of that shell material. Okay. So like a lobster shell isn't rock hard like a clam shell. It's kind of a little bit soft. Not that I have a ton of experience touching live lobsters. Right. And certain parts of the lobster shell will be harder than others. Like the claws are really, really tough because there's more polysaccharide or it's just the way that the laminations are put down that the animal can control the hardness of the material in different parts of their skeleton. So what? Yeah, I know. It's pretty complex. Wait, an animal can control how hard its skeleton is? Right. So it wants certain parts to be more flexible and certain parts like the claws to be really hard. So they can control the biopolymer structure to give the biopolymer different mechanical properties that it's looking for. So evolution has selected for those different properties, you know, over millions and millions of years. And so that might be why it's hard to break open certain parts of, you know, you like your crab shell versus other parts of your crab shell that are a lot easier to break apart if you're trying to get to the meat underneath. So if you think about the predators, the predators are also trying to do the same kind of thing. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So, okay. That's like, we could get diverted on that one. Okay. What I want to know in that is like, when you say the animal can control where like the hardness of its shell or its skeleton, I mean, is it making a quasi-conscious choice to be like, okay, claws get harder? Or is it just like the genes are making the claws harder? Right. The genes are just making certain areas of the exoskeleton harder and certain areas softer. Just because natural selection is selected for those properties in that particular part of the organism, because it enhances the fitness of that organism. If it has harder claws, then it can battle more. I'm not sure. I'm not a zoologist. I'm a microbiologist. I focus mostly on single cell things. (laughs) That's my understanding. (laughs) Okay. But the lobster's not sitting there like, I want uber hard claws. No, I want... What do you call? Who's the cartoon character who eats the spinach? 
Popeye. Popeye. I want Popeye arms. So give me some Popeye arms with lots of calcium carbonates. I could have lots of brawls with my fellow crabs out there. The lobster's not doing that. This is just an evolutionary, like certain parts of the shell are harder based on evolution. Right. Exactly. Okay. 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 Got it. They can have varying components and it also varies on the life stage of the animal too. And you know, they need to molt. So they need to have a structure that is hard, flexible, modular, and yet that they can molt and then they can build a bigger exoskeleton after they've molted that structure. So yeah, it's very interesting. It makes you glad that you don't have to live in one of those exoskeletons <laughs> running around here. Just be one more thing to think about. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So we've got the chitin. You said you started out working on cyanobacteria. Mm-hmm. What makes something a cyanobacteria? So cyanobacteria do oxygenic photosynthesis. So oxygenic means they generate oxygen. They are responsible for the oxygen that we have in our atmosphere. So they're really important because they've changed the chemistry of the planet. They're highly adaptable and diverse. They're in practically every ecosystem that we've looked at. And they're very ancient organisms as well. And they've been evolving and adapting with the changes chemistry of the planet. So our atmosphere, for example, didn't originally have oxygen in it. So they help produce that. And oxygen, of course, is toxic. Other organisms have had to co-adapt and evolve along with the oxygen that's produced with those organisms. And so there's a very interesting, complex evolutionary history that microbial life has underwent over billions of years as these organisms have changed and evolved into living in different habitats and gaining new traits, like the ability to evolve different sources of nitrogen based on what's available in the environment. That's what I had been studying for many, many years. So we made this accidental discovery that, hey, some of these organisms can metabolize chitin and they have the genes in their genomes. I just developed a side project that started a number of years ago to just isolate these organisms from the environment just to see what's going to grow, what's capable of growing on this particular compound. And it eventually led into this culture collection that I've developed. So I have a culture collection of probably 120, 130 some odd different cultures of different species of cyanobacteria and different species of algae. So about half of my culture collection are mostly single-celled algae that can also grow on that compound as well. And so we have a few genome sequences from algae. They have much bigger genomes and they're much harder to get their sequence because they're so much bigger. But they also have genes involved in chitin degradation in their genomes as well. There's the link there. So we're isolating them and finding diverse species. And we do know that some of those organisms do have chitin metabolizing genes where they can degrade chitin materials. We don't exactly know what those pathways are. Those are inferred pathways based on the genes that are observed in their genomes. But we are finding a lot of them in the environment. So I think that there's a lot to learn about what kind of nitrogen compounds these organisms are using in the environment. And then once we get them into the lab and we can put them under controlled conditions, can we use that to benefit mankind? You know, can we use that to grow algae in a commercial space to produce things that have a commercial value like pigments and oils? Is chitin a nitrogen-based compound? You said it was organic. It's a carbon-based compound. So it has the backbone of cellulose, essentially, with a nitrogen compound hanging off the bottom and then an acetyl group, which is a two-carbon sugar that hangs off of the nitrogen. Oh my God. I never took organic chemistry. <laughs> so I don't remember anything about what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. 
It's basically an organic polymer, and it's the second most abundant organic polymer on the planet Earth. So it's highly abundant. There's a lot of things that make it. And consequently, there are a lot of things that degrade it as well in the environment. Okay, you're talking chitin is the second most abundant polymer? Mm-hmm. Yep. On the planet? On the planet. Holy cow. After cellulose. Oh my gosh. Okay. Wow. So there's tons of it around for you guys to use and digest with your algae. Exactly. Right. So let me get this straight here. So you've got your bacteria and you're like, hey, look, these bacteria, it looks like I'm looking at the genome and it looks like they digest chitin. Right. How can we put this to use? What sort of commercial applications? That got me going from transitioning mentally from a basic scientist to trying to do some applied science. So there's a little bit of a mental shift associated there. So I started doing some research on, well, what can we do with this? And what can we produce with this? And as we started doing more experimentation, we found a lot of really beneficial properties of using this material. So normally when we grow algae on a commercial level, or cyanobacteria for that matter, we're going to need to give it some macronutrients. So that would include phosphorus, that would include nitrogen. Then we need to give it some micronutrients like calcium and magnesium magnesium and some chlorine and sulfur and things like that. So your macronutrients are your big ones. So phosphorus and nitrogen. And your nitrogen usually comes from a chemical fertilizer. We use chemical fertilizers in agriculture, but we also do for producing algae. So those chemical fertilizers are things like ammonium nitrate or urea or just ammonia or urea or nitrate, for example. So those are chemical fertilizers. Those chemical fertilizers are all made chemically. So you have a big production facility and you take basically air, compress it to very high temperatures and pressures, and then that generates chemical fertilizers. And that's usually done with fossil fuels, right? Yes. So it can be done with coal, could be done with natural gas, could be done with hydropower. It depends on you know what your local energy supplies are and the cheapest energy supply. And so in agricultural areas, sometimes you'll be driving out in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden you'll see a whole bunch of power lines converging upon a plant. You know, what seems to be out in the middle of nowhere, well, what they're doing is they're making chemical fertilizers and then they're distributing that probably to the local area, the local farms. And since it's a high greenhouse gas footprint, you see all those electricity lines coming into that plant. You need a lot of energy to do that. So by using chitin instead, we don't have to use chemical fertilizers. So we can use this organic compound instead as a nitrogen source. And then we don't have to use those chemical fertilizers that have that really large carbon footprint to grow our algae. So do you need the fossil fuel for the energy or for the nitrogen itself or both? The fossil fuel is a carbon-based compound. So that's used to generate the temperatures and pressures needed to pressurize, usually air because air is mostly nitrogen. So the nitrogen comes from nitrogen gas in the air. So you need high temperature, high pressure, and a catalyst to turn that into chemical fertilizers. Okay. So that's called the Haber-Bosch process. It's called the what process? Haber-Bosch process. Haber-Bosch process. Noted. Nobel Prize. Remember that. Nobel Prize. Oh, Nobel Prize. Oh, absolutely. That's the one reason why we can continue to feed as many people as we have on the earth is because of our ability to make chemical fertilizers. So that was a big discovery in the 20th century. Okay. And so the nitrogen is not from the fossil fuels. The fossil fuels is just sourcing the energy to compress the air to get the nitrogen out and turn it into a chemical fertilizer. It takes a lot of energy to take nitrogen gas and to turn that 
into chemical fertilizer. Yes. Uh, okay. So what you're talking about is suddenly a new way of using the algae to create a fertilizer that's not a chemical fertilizer. Right. So we can use chitin instead. So chitin contains nitrogen and it contains carbon. So we can use that as our nitrogen and our carbon source to feed our algae. So we don't have to use chemical fertilizers. Not only do we not have to pay for chemical fertilizers, but then we don't have the greenhouse gas footprint that comes along with using those chemical fertilizers. Okay. So you get the nitrogen out of the chitin mm -hmm. and how does the algae turn it into a fertilizer or doesn't it? We don't know the details. Probably the different lineages of algae probably do it in different ways. We see that happening in bacteria. In different lineages of bacteria, they've evolved different pathways to break that polymer down because there are many ways that you could do it. We do see the genes in their genome, so we know that they're doing it. We know that they can grow on it because we can see that in the lab. We don't know the fine details in terms of what gene is involved in creating what particular pathway for different lineages. So basically, they have the polymer. They can either break the polymer down into monomers, so the single units of that polymer, or they can just clip the nitrogen off of the end, and some of them probably do that by looking at them and how they're growing in the culture, so some of them probably do that and leave a cellulose residue. Others can break it down more completely. Some of my strains, like some of my filamentous cyanobacteria, just burrow into it, and they almost look like a hairbrush, so you'll see a chitin lump up particle, and you'll see this organism burrowing into the center, and they basically just turned it into gel. They just solubilize the material. It's pretty crazy. Holy cow. But then one of the byproducts that they spit out is something like urea or some kind of chemical fertilizer. No, they take the nitrogen up and incorporate that into biomass. They're not going to release any nitrogen back into the water. So that's another added benefit is the chitin does not dissolve into water. It's a solid. So the algae will physically bind to the particle and then they'll secrete enzymes to degrade that particle and then to take that up and to make biomass. So they'll start growing and make proteins, they'll make nucleic acids and all the different components of the cell, and then they'll divide and make other cells as well. So they're actively growing on that molecule as a macronutrient. We do have evidence that they're also using the carbon in that compound as well. So I said that it's a polymer that also contains carbon. They can also get a lot of their carbon from that material as well. And some strains probably can get all of the carbon from that material, and some strains can get some of it or not very much of it. So we see some variation in that. We haven't tested all of our strains in terms of how well they can take the carbon material up. So basically, algae, you need to feed them your phosphorus, you need to feed them their nitrogen. You also need to feed them carbon. Carbon can come in the form of CO2, or it could come in the form of an organic source of carbon, such as it can come as glycerol, it can come in the form of acetate, it can come in the form of chitin as well. I'm beginning to wrap my head around the chemistry here. <laughs> it's taking me a second. <laughs> You're mostly going to be using hematococcus flagellate, right? Hematococcus is something we've started focusing on because they make a very interesting pigment. So they're red, so it's called hematococcus. Coccus means round, heme means blood red, essentially. So it's a round blood red cell. That red compound is a pigment called astaxanthin. And there's a lot of commercial interest in using astaxanthin as a natural source of a red pigment. It's also a powerful antioxidant. So there's a lot of commercial interest in 
that compound. And it's a high value compound too. So that's one reason why we're focusing on it right now. If you go to our website, you'll see a lot of pictures of our hematococcus growing on chitin particles. And our logo is based on the flagellate. The flagellate means it's a swimming stage. So it produces two little tails and it can swim using those two little tails. So that became part of our logo. We're focusing on that particular strain, but we have a lot of other strains. So we have green strains, we have strains that are orange, we have yellow strains, we have other different colors of organisms that we have growing that have different properties that could have different commercial uses. So your question was... I can't even <laughs> remember. <laughs> I mean, if you, saw, what, you can't what? see me because the pop filter's in the way, but my mouth is wide open. I'm just <laughs> totally amazed by all this. Looking at what is of interest in the community and what people are looking for in the commercial space, I think we have two major themes. We have cleaning water. So these algae can remove nutrients from water, such as excess phosphorus. We have a lot of problems with excess phosphorus that are produced by industry or that are found in rivers and streams, like in Florida, for example. So we have a lot of nutrients that are coming out because of either agriculture or industry that are being entered into local bodies of water. So what we could potentially do is we could set up some barges, for example, and we could pick up some of that water that has excess nutrients. We can grow them in a controlled way. So we can grow our hematococcus, for example, in a photobioreactor, which can absorb the sun, has chitin in it, and then we can remove that phosphorus as the organisms grow. They'll take that phosphorus out of the water, and then what comes out of that system is clean water and biomass. So we have a way to clean water. The important thing is we're not using a chemical fertilizer to do that. So chemical fertilizers dissolve into the water and they're going to be a residual in that water. So what comes out of that system is going to be no phosphorus because the algae would have taken it up, but you're going to have some excess nitrogen in that water. Whereas for our system, we're not going to have any residual of nitrogen in that water. And we've tested that and published that in the scientific literature. So we've demonstrated that, at least on the research side, that we're able to grow these algae, remove phosphorus from water and our products are truly clean water and algal biomass and then we've also removed a waste product which is the chitin from the waste shell material in the first place right okay so we'll get onto the chitin and the waste material where that comes from in just a second but what volume of water are we talking about like if you have a gigantic i don't know red tide or something because there's a ton of phosphorus or say you have the dead zone in the gulf of mexico what volumes of water are we talking about and how much algae and like how many barges would you need like how do I visualize all this? That's a really good question. Well, I think that there's no one solution to the problem. Yeah. We have a lot of single point sources that are putting phosphorus and other nutrients into water. We need to try to find ways in which where we can reduce that input in the first place. That is really the first thing we'd want to do. The second thing is once it's in the aquatic system, we need to try to reduce it. So it's in the sediments, it's in the water column. How can we try to reduce that? So that's where we could set up some barges, for example, to try to reduce what's already in that system and to try to collect and to put that into algal biomass, which then we could use for other purposes, such as pigment or oil production, and remove it from that aquatic system so that it's not going to support a red tide bloom when that water eventually makes it out to the open ocean, which is what's happening right now. Okay, so I'm imagining like 
say the Clark Fork River, right? And say you've got the pulp mill downstream, right? Say you at the effluent end of that, you have some kind of structure that contains the algae. Cause that was what I was wondering about. I was like, do you just dump the algae in the water? Like where do they go? But it sounds like you contain them and force the water through them. Right. So you'll contain that into what's called a photobioreactor. So a photobioreactor is just a controlled vessel in which you could control the parameters where you're growing your algae. And so you take your wastewater in, you have a photobioreactor set up where you can control the algae and how they grow. And then after they've removed the nutrients from that water, you can separate the algae out and then you have your water and then that can be released back into the natural environment. Okay. And then meanwhile, you take the algae, then you're like, sweet, not only do we have clean water, but now we have all this reg pigment that we can go out and sell on the market or whatever other useful byproducts. Right. So if you have a revenue stream from that, that can help reduce the cost of cleaning that water using a photobioreactor, right? So we can remove the nutrient and then we have the biomass and then the biomass can help generate a revenue stream to help offset the cost of cleaning that water. Okay. Got it. You also get oil out of these, right? Oil out of the biomass? Right. Yes. What's the quantity of oil that we're talking about? Like, is this quantities of oil that could power like a vehicle or like a state or country? I've done a little bit of market research and looked at the potential for, say, if we were to operate at a pulp mill, how much oil would we be generating? It's not a huge amount of oil, but it could be enough to offset. You could fuel your plant and you could sell probably a little bit of it. And there's not a huge revenue stream there. And part of the reason why is because you're having to compete with the very low cost of conventional sources of fuel. Fossil fuels are so cheap and inexpensive right now that it's very, very hard to compete and to really fund a business using the current price of oil. I don't really see that as being a huge revenue stream, but it can help offset emissions at your local plant. It could you know, reduce your need to buy biodiesel, biofuel, and that's not nothing. <laughs> so there's the benefit to that. But I don't see that as being a central business model going forward. The real benefit I think is going to be in the production of natural pigments and dyes. Okay. There's a big emerging market for making renewables, sustainable dyes and pigments. So that would be pigments for lots of different things. So things like salmon aquaculture. <laughs> oh God. So salmon. Because <laughs> we don't want to eat just regular colored salmon. We want it colored pink. <laughs> well, did you know that if you grow salmon, the flesh would be white? Yes. That wild caught salmon has like a light peachy color and farmed salmon is white. And so they give it colored pills. Right. They give it colored pills. Most people buy those colored pills. It's a chemically synthesized compound coming from overseas. And it's, you know, basically made from fossil fuels. Oh, it's made. Oh, God. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> What is that pigment? It's astaxanthin, okay? So in the wild, the salmon are getting the astaxanthin ultimately from algae. People don't want to buy white salmon, so they color the flesh. Most people will buy commercially synthesized or chemically synthesized astaxanthin and feed that to their farm salmon. What we can do is we can grow this on a large scale, hopefully someday, and we can generate lots and lots of astaxanthin, and we can have naturally sourced astaxanthin to feed salmon in our aquaculture pens. That's one potential application. Another are nutraceuticals. So for example, astaxanthin is a very powerful antioxidant. So lots of people are starting to pop astaxanthin pills. So <laughs> we can crack open the algae and get algae oil that's enriched in astaxanthin, put that into a pill. And we have companies out in Hawaii that are doing that right now and selling that on the market. That's another application. So we have natural food pigments. 
So we have natural dyes and inks. So that's another new application as well. So that's something I'm in the process of learning more about. So for example, when we have paper and we have inks in our paper, we go to recycle that paper. A lot of those inks have chlorine in them. And in the recycling process, that converts into PCBs. Eek. Yes. The more and more we recycle paper, the more we're accumulating PCBs in our paper streams. Oh my God. So a lot of the pulp and paper mills are starting to get really interested in seeing that the paper and printing industry start using sustainable inks that are natural and don't have chlorine-based chemicals in them so that they can start to reduce the PCB levels in some of their recycling streams and paper recycling. It's amazing to think about all of these different aspects. And you think about the footprint that humans have on the planet and just think about just how we really impact the hydrological cycle and the biological cycle and you know we have massive agriculture and we have these really large pulp mills and paper recycling and all these chemicals that we generate and you know the long-term consequences of the accumulation of these chemicals and we have to think about what's going to happen in 20 or 30 years and maybe how we can mitigate some of the detrimental aspects such as the accumulation of PCBs in some of the waste streams that we have it's really been an amazing thing to learn about as a basic scientist, starting to learn about all these different applied ways that we can take research into the commercial zone. And just to think about how some of our business practices are starting to slowly change and starting to think about how do we make our commercial streams more circular instead of taking a raw material, producing a product and producing a waste stream. How do we think about turning that into a circle, into a cycle, and to make our cycles efficient. And each one of those cycles and different aspects of those cycle could be potential businesses and potential sources of revenue streams. It's really exciting. And, you know, I tell students that and just to think of the opportunities that they have, you know, to develop a career and doing some of these things that are really interesting and engaging for them coming out of college, for example, and thinking about new directions and new ways of doing things. Yeah, because like you say, you know, the sort of linear waste stream, it served a purpose when it was invented, but we can't keep going. We can't keep doing that. Right. Exactly. So when you look out on the horizon right now, what do you see as the more promising business prospect? Is it the development of the pigments for the pigment sake? Is it the development of the pigments because of the antioxidant properties? Or is it the filtration of water or something else? I think it's all of the above. And some are going to end up potentially having more of a revenue stream than others. And potentially one of those revenue streams can help to support other activities such as cleaning water, which might cost money, or generating biofuels where you might not have much of a return on that. But if you can also produce pigments at the same time, that can help kind of offset some of the costs associated with producing biofuels or inexpensive biofuels or ultra low carbon biofuels, which is what we're aiming to do. So let's go back to, because I promised that we would, the chitin piece, right? Because like, <laughs> so the next question becomes stock. like, where do you get all your chitin from? <laughs> You know, I mean, you're not going out and harvesting crabs and lobsters to get your chitin. You're getting it from the waste stream of the seafood product industry, I'm guessing. Exactly. So we have 760 million pounds are being harvested every year. And most of that mass is waste shell. And most of that is going into the landfill. What? So there's very little commercial use of waste shell material from the crustacean shellfish industry. Can it not get composted or turned into something else from right where it is? Some is composted, but that's a very low value product. 
Okay. It's probably a net cost associated with turning that into compost. So there are emerging businesses now that are just a couple years old that are starting to pop up. So my 760 million pounds, that's a U.S. production rate from a couple years ago. Canada, I haven't looked at their production, but they produce a lot as well. Some of the harvesters we're looking at, we're talking to some in Canada. So there's some new businesses that are starting to amalgamate those waste streams and starting to process that waste material to different levels of purification and then trying to sell that and to find commercial value for it on the open market. Right now, it seems like a lot of those companies are selling their material to China. China's probably putting that material and purifying it into chitin and chitosan and then using that in the pharmaceutical industries and chemical industries. That's not a huge margin. Well, for chitosan, there's more of a revenue stream from that than from chitin, but that's primarily where a lot of it's going. And they're probably not making a huge amount of money doing that although those values aren't really released out into the public yet. So those are all some small companies that are starting to pop up. So we've been starting to talk to some of them about how we could potentially tap into their waste stream. So I'm writing a grant proposal right now to support some research to try to see, do we really need to have pure chitin and chitosan? Can we have bulk shell material? Can we have partially purified shell material? And then if we do need to partially purify it, can we take the waste products from that purification? And can we feed that back to algae? Because all of those those elements should be able to support algal growth. They all should be able to use the protein as a nitrogen source that's in that shell and to use the calcium carbonate as a carbon source as well in that shell material. So we should be able to recycle that and put that all essentially into algal biomass in the future. Holy cow. Okay. So recycling wastes. <laughs> wow. It's like at every turn, there's something that the algae takes up. There's some kind of waste product, right? So like what finding the value in the waste product every time it gets morphed into something else. Right. Wild to think about how many branches that has on it. And each of those branches is a potential opportunity, right? Exactly. Wow. One of the times we talked, you said that the vast majority of the shell material is on the East Coast. No, that's just some of the conversations we've started to have. We've also started some conversations with a company that works in Washington State and they take Alaskan waste crab and then they process that into pure chitin and chitosan. So that's another potential partner of a feedstock source that we have and we've been in conversations with them. That's interesting in Alaska where they do a lot of the crab and lobster harvesting up there. In terms of their environmental laws, I've talked to some folks up there at the state of Alaska. What they do for their waste, those harvesters just dump the waste back into the ocean. So it's not even landfilled in the state of Alaska. So they're intercepting that stream and also preventing all of those nutrients from just going back into the ocean and producing other pollution problems there in your nearshore environments. And then and intercepting that and then purifying that and then selling that as pure product. And they're fairly new as well. But they're also doing research and development, trying to find other markets for their chitin and chitosan as well. So they're doing a lot of really interesting, exciting, developing new products as well. So where there's the waste, there's an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> One man's waste is another man's treasure. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, you guys, I'm going to jump in here and catch those of you who might have gotten lost along the way. I'm going to give you a simple explanation for all the pieces and parts that are involved in this process. Ready? Think of it like an equation where you have on the left side a bunch of things going in and on the right side a bunch of things coming out. On the left side, you start with algae. It eats the chitin that's made up of carbon and nitrogen. And the chitin comes from the spent crustacean shells. You add a stream of water that has phosphorus dissolved in it. 
you add micronutrients like iron, zinc, calcium, sodium, you add light, and on the output side comes more algae, because the algae grow, as to xanthan, which creates the red dye that can be used just for a dye, or it can be used as an antioxidant. You also clean phosphorus from the water, and the algae make oil that can be used like biofuel, and they breathe out oxygen. Okay, so on the left, algae in plus chitin, which is carbon and nitrogen, dissolved phosphorus in the wastewater, plus the micronutrients, plus the light, grows more algae with astaxanthin, which is the red dye, cleans the water of phosphorus, makes oil, and breathes out oxygen. Okay, now back to Corinne. Okay, so let's transition to how you turn this into a business, right? Because one of the things that I think is really interesting in talking to you is you're an academic, you're a researcher. Yes. And here you are, you found something that is potentially economically viable or what have you, and suddenly your brain needs to shift to this different way of thinking. That's how do I make money off this? And when you're a professor, I'm guessing you don't spend a lot of time thinking that way. Not normally. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to think a different way. Like, how do I figure this out? What's interesting about this? Blah, blah, blah. So suddenly... Now your mind also needs to adopt this new track of thinking, which is how do I turn this into a product that the market wants to buy? And how do I turn that into a business with a whole structure and, you know, an LLC and a business name and a website and a bookkeeper and a scale and grants that well, grants you're probably well-versed I'm in. But pretty familiar with yeah, yeah. grants you've got, but like <laughs> all those business nuts and bolts of like right. managing and business know-how. Yeah, that's all very intimidating. It is the whole nother world. And it's been interesting because over the years, it's just a little bit more has been taken over my brain in terms of some of my activities. So it's been a slow progression in that way. But in July here, we've just decided to go, let's just do this full time. That's what I'm doing full time now is to turn this into a commercial enterprise. So we're taking what we've studied on the bench scale in the lab under controlled conditions. And then we need to think about how we can scale that up to a commercial production facility. And so that is intimidating. It's daunting. How do we go about doing that? So one of the things that nobody's ever done is grow algae on a commercial scale using a solid nutrient. So our chitin is solid. It doesn't dissolve into water. So we grind it up into small little particles. And then it's a powder. We put it into our flasks, for example, and the algae can grow on it just fine and dandy. So nobody's ever taken that kind of an idea and scale that up to a large scale. So we're starting to have conversations with some new collaborators at South Dakota State University and they're engineers and they are experts at photobioreactor design. So we're talking about how we could potentially use it either existing designs or develop a new design, a new photobioreactor platform that can take the solid chitin and as a nutrient source, which has very unique properties in that it sinks, it doesn't float it sinks. (laughs) So it sinks to the bottom of your flask or your photobioreactor. And how can we build a platform that will efficiently use it and efficiently produce algae on it and clean water and do the things that we wanted to do? So that's an engineering challenge. We're thinking about how can we solve some of those engineering problems and then optimize the production of our algae using our chitin feedstock as our nitrogen feedstock. And then how do we also optimize the production, not only of the algae themselves, but the things that we want so that the oils and the pigments and the data in the lab already shows that we can really increase oil and pigment content of those cells. So just growing on chitin alone, we can increase pigment and oil content 
anywhere from two to five fold compared to chemical fertilizers. So we can really crank up the amount of pigments and oils and the good stuff in those cells. The question is, can we scale that? So we need to figure out the engineering solutions to do that. And then once we do kind of a test pilot scale, then how do we even scale that up even further to much, much larger volumes? Wow. That's a unique challenge that as a bench scientist, haven't been exposed to. But again, a lot of it comes down to problem solving. You see a hurdle, you see a challenge. How do we attack that challenge? How do we collect the data that we need to show whether we're succeeding or not? So we learn all those skills in science and those are all applicable for doing our research and development for how are we going to figure out how we're going to scale this process and really kind of make this happen at large volumes. So if you are now in this full time, how are you making money? Like, are you still a professor? Is that still happening? Are you out fully out on your own? Like I see, it looks like you're in the lab. I see lots of blue and white behind you. <laughs> I'm fully in the lab. We don't yet have our own production space. So I'm using some space at Blue Marble Biomaterials, which is a local biotech company, which has very generously offered me some space as we start up and we start developing a revenue stream, then we can start moving to our own facilities. So we do not have a revenue stream right now. We need to figure out some of these engineering hurdles before we're going to be able to really start to scale. Yeah, we also need to think about the feedstock. So this is also going into a grant proposal we're writing for our small business innovation research proposal. Where are the waste streams coming from? So we need to figure out where are the waste streams, what times of the year are they producing? What are the volumes that they're producing? What are the species they're producing from? And for some of the companies that could sell us some feedstock, you know, what is the purity? Can our algae grow on it? Can they still produce the good stuff off of various purity levels? There's a lot of variables that we want to try to get a handle on and to kind of figure out what's going to work best for scaling and going forward. You know, it could be that the pure stuff is just not economically feasible. So, you know, maybe we can buy the raw shell material, purify it ourselves, and then take the waste from the purification process, put that back into our algae, and that might actually help be the way to go forward. Or it could be maybe we can just go ahead and just purchase the purified stuff right off of the market. So we're going to need to do the kind of research to figure all of that out. So some of that will be just kind of testing at bench scale or at kind of intermediate scales. So we need to figure out where our feedstock is going to be coming from. How are we going to treat it? And then the engineering hurdles with how do we produce that photobioreactor platform that's designed to use that material optimally and to produce biomass and clean water. Oh my God. So you have a ton of moving parts and like in a Venn diagram of all the, all the different parts. <laughs> Possibilities. Yes. There's like a bunch of different right. things moving yes. around and you're trying to figure out where the overlap is of what's viable and what the market wants. Right, exactly. And what the opportunities are and what we see the opportunities are in the next five, six, 10 years. Because there may be things that you could create that the market doesn't even know about yet, but may be interested in once you make them. Right. Exactly. Right. And we're learning new opportunities, you know, like I was saying, you know, taking algae and in terms of reducing chemical pigments in paper. Yeah, it said I got a notice saying that the internet connection was unstable. So let's say that again. What was I talking about? <laughs> a big long train of thought. 
So the market may not have even come up with. So things that the market might want that doesn't even know exists. Right. So seeing forward, we need to kind of try to look at the opportunities going forward for the next, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, ten years to see what potential opportunities might be down the road. And some of them, you know, we're still learning about. And some of them, they might be popping up in the next couple of years as new opportunities and new interest in developing new product streams from natural renewable sources are coming of interest in the commercial sphere. Oh my God. So awesome. I love it. Holy cow. I mean, you guys are really <laughs> pioneering something new here, right? Like nobody's doing what you're doing. Right. Well, luckily we don't have to invent the wheel in terms of growing algae and growing biomass. <laughs> <laughs> there's you don't that. have to do that part. <laughs> Thank goodness. There's a lot of know-how and a lot of research that's been done. So we don't have to start from scratch there. The, the unique aspect is, again, having a solid source of a nutrient. That's really the new component to it. And just the dynamics of how it works in solution and how the algae grow on it is a little bit different. So that's the part that we need to just figure out. Because most anyone else who's been doing it, the nutrient is dissolved or in the liquid? It's soluble in the water, right? Okay. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's kind of mind blowing to think about how you take this, or at least it is for me, you know, how you take this, you're talking about a whole new way of doing things that people may be doing some parts of, but nobody's doing it exactly the way you're doing it and figuring out like all these different moving parts, right? you know, that's new in a lot of ways. It's new in a lot of ways. And yeah, nobody's growing algae on this material as far as we know. So it's a new way of really growing algae on what was considered to be a waste product. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. I love it. So if you could have anything you wanted or if this worked out like beyond your wildest dreams, what's your vision for what is possible to create? That's a really good question. I haven't really thought about it that far in the future, actually. I can see paths going forward for lots of different opportunities. And I think kind of diversifying those opportunities for different sub-businesses that do different roles. I don't see one specific vision for where all of that is going to go in the future. I see lots and lots of different opportunities opportunities, and some of which are going to be more lucrative than others and are going to be changing and going to be show and present themselves further on down the line. And I think that's the exciting part of it. So I don't have a grand vision of producing one entire thing. I'd like to see a platform that can allow us to do lots of different things with the material. And it's interesting, we didn't have that vision a long time ago. We just saw this as a really unique way to just grow algae on a material that nobody's ever used before. And then trying to see what some of those opportunities are has really been mind-blowing. It's been really interesting and just exciting. It's also the time and the timing. Now's a great time because we are starting to think about our impact on the planet. At least some of us are. (laughs) It hasn't really percolated so much into the political realm yet, but that's probably just a matter of time. But there are a number of businesses that are really starting to think about what are some of those new opportunities going forward? How can we really think about new ways of making a business, taking a waste stream, producing something that was in the past considered to be a waste and now is considered to be a valuable commodity and something that we can do really interesting things with. And also maybe at the same time, reducing PCBs in 
at pulp mills that are recycling paper, for example, that have a downstream benefit that maybe is really far downstream, but still has a downstream benefit, which is a plus plus, you know, win, win, win all around. So seeing that as a challenge and seeing those opportunities slowly percolating and seeing more businesses that are getting involved in that is really, really interesting and exciting. I think that even 10 years ago, there was not very much excitement in terms of the algae field, in terms of using algae to produce biofuels, for example. It wasn't really seen to be a very good revenue stream, but I think that that's changing with time. I think that we're seeing all these new opportunities. We're starting to see companies such as out in Hawaii that are you know, starting to produce astaxanthin in, in large quantities and making good amounts of money doing that and starting to see those come online. So we're starting to see increased opportunities and also see other opportunities like, wow, we have lots of nutrients in Florida. How could we potentially control the growth of algae in a photobioreactor instead of having uncontrolled growth out there in the lakes and streams and canals that are causing all kinds of really hazards that are out there? How can we do that in a controlled manner and really do good with that and clean water, reduce our greenhouse gas footprint, produce some biofuels and produce natural compounds that are beneficial to multiple industries. So I think the opportunities are growing. They're really exciting. And just to try to come up with solutions with that is very interesting from even the research part of my brain, which, you know, is still active and still thinking about these things from a research perspective as well as an applied perspective, starting to think about that from a business perspective as a young business in a, my new role in the business world. There's so much potential here. I can't wait to see where this takes you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just need to make it happen. That's the daunting part. Just, just that. <laughs> is we need to make it happen. So we'll need to get some grant support, I think. We'll need to get some funding. We'll need to get some people on board that also share our excitement and vision and some partners and some companies that are interested in providing us with some feedstock and helping us. You know, once we produce the biomass, what do we do from there? Luckily, you know, I'm working here at a biomaterials facility. They can take our biomass and they can separate that out into components and produce that for food industries or put that into pills or do lots of different things with it. So it's great. Well, it's perfect that you shared all that because there are a lot of people who listen to the She Thinks Big podcast every week and I don't know all of who they are exactly and we just don't know who's out there that has those connections, those resources, those interest levels, those connections that are the exact right thing that's going to help you get to the next step. Right, and we're always open to new connections and talking to new people, getting new ideas and hearing from even from students that, you know, might be interested in potentially coming on board with us in the future too. So once we start getting some funding and we can start doing some hiring, so that'll be an exciting time. I'm just so amazed at what you have come up with, even though you kind of stumbled into it accidentally, what you're turning it into and the potential for what you can create with this. This has been super interesting to talk with you. I wish you the best of luck on a macro scale. On the micro scale too. And on the micro scale. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the She Thinks Big podcast. Thank you very much for having us. I loved wrapping my brain around Corinne's accidental discovery that finding a genetic sequence that dissolves chitin and outputs other useful byproducts, and that the whole thing can be turned into a viable business with significant environmental ramifications just about blew my mind. Corinne's accidental discovery has far reaching implications and opportunities. What I loved most were two things. One is that this process addresses four problems at the same time. Using spent crustacean shells that currently get landfilled, cleaning phosphorus from water, and out of that, creating two useful byproducts, one of which, astaxanthin, 
can be used either for its antioxidant properties or for its pigment as a natural, non-petroleum-based red dye. And, oh by the way, it also creates biofuel. Granted, there's a lot to be worked out, including the challenge of developing this whole thing at scale. The second thing that I appreciate is the elegant way that nature does all of this, compared to the brute force way we're currently doing it. Burning fossil fuel to compress air to pull the nitrogen out, to put fertilizer on the ground that sends phosphorus into the water system that creates algal blooms. While I appreciate that the Haber-Bosch process is a discovery that has helped us to feed 8 billion people on this planet, in light of climate change, it's clearly a colossal waste of energy to be doing it this way. It's still not exactly clear to me where fertilizer fits into all of this, but I'll work it out the next time I bump into Corinne. You can find Corinne at corinne.blank at carbonneutra.com, and her website is carbonneutra.com. I'll put both of those in the show notes. Listeners, what are your key takeaways? Come share in the She Thinks Big Facebook group. If you're not a member, come and join us. Go to Facebook and search She Thinks Big. It's free, and it's the best place to be if your big ideas need airtime and support to grow. If you want to find out more about the She Thinks Big podcast or hear previous episodes, head on over to my website, shethinksbigpodcast.com. And of course, I want to know what you're thinking big about. I hope you'll share in the She Thinks Big Facebook group. I love hearing from listeners because here in my studio, all I hear is crickets and my meowing cats. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do leave me a raving five-star review. You can write to me at Geraldine at SheThinksBigPodcast.com. And if you want to send a tweet, I'm at Geraldine Carter. You've been listening to She Thinks Big. See you next week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Registration is open now, but it won't be for long. Go to GeraldineCarter.com now to enroll today.